chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 here today. So we go to this passage. This, this, is, this week and next week are wrap, wrapping up our series over the course of the summer. What we've been doing for the last several weeks is looking at the core aspects of our church and who it is that God is calling us to be as a body of believers here at Cornerstone and the things that he is calling us to focus on. So at the beginning of the summer, we looked at our mercy ministries and the need to respond to God's grace in our life, particularly as expressed in mercy ministry. We looked at um, the call to worship and what is worship and how God calls us to worship him and the purposes in that. We also looked at the mission of the church, particularly the church in Antioch and how God works through his body and works through the church to bring about his redemption. Here this week and next week, we're going to be examining how God calls us to be devoted to one another. We're focusing here on Hebrews chapter 3 today, just these two verses, verses 12 and 13 is just all that we're going to focus on here today. And as we go to this passage, I do just need to um, give credit to Paul Tripp for some of his insights into these verses and, and into the nature of relationships. Follow along with me as I read. This is on page 1002 under the blue, in the Blue Pew Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. This is God's word. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. Lord, we ask that you would use your word and your spirit in this community of believers to soften our hearts. Lord, that your spirit would soften our hearts to seek your word that you would soften us from the deceitfulness of sin. And Lord, that you would use us and use one another to draw us more deeply into relationship with you. Lord, send your spirit to this end this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The night that I realized that I was beginning to go blind is permanently emblazoned in my mind. We were sitting at an intersection in St. Louis, and I was making a left-hand turn. I was driving. It was a clear night. Holly was in the right in the passenger seat, and as I was making this left-hand turn, I was proceeding across the intersection, and Holly screams, stop! And I'm like, why are you yelling at me? And I turn and look back, and there is a highway divider that is right at the front of our car. When I talk about a highway divider, I don't just mean like a, a pole. I mean like a median, like a tall, large median that divides the highway into the interstate was right in front of our car. And Holly looks at me and she's like, did you not see that? Well, I do now. <laughs> and she's like, how, how could you not see that? I have no idea. I have no idea. And it was that night that then began a journey over the next several days and weeks, over the next couple years, as many of you are aware, where I had had a series of hemorrhages in my eye that had uh, knocked out the vision in my eyes such that I became almost, that I became, had blindness and losing all the central vision in my left eye. I have a large portion of my peripheral vision in my left eye and a significant portion of vision in my right eye. It was over a series of weeks that I had lost more and more, more and more vision. And what had happened, though, was that as I had had these hemorrhages, is that I had this massive blind spot in my, the center of my vision. But my brain had filled in the gaps. 
And my brain had filled in the image such that the image was stitched together in this nice continuous stream, and those gaps just simply, those gaps just simply weren't present. Now, I'll give you the end of the story because I know that for those of you that have been journeying with me in this is that fortunately my condition is episodic. It's not a progressive degenerative condition, which means that it's not like it's continually getting worse and worse and worse. It means that everything's fine and then it blows up and I lose significant portions of vision. Fortunately, for the last two and a half years, I have, I've been stable without any complications, large part due to the prayers of you, the prayers of the people in this church. And um, so I've been stable for two and a half years now, and hopefully I plan to ride that train for the next 50 and 60 years is, is a kind of my intention with that. But subsequently what happened is that we, we pull in that we're sitting in this intersection, and this stark reality that I'm confronted with of this blindness that I have in my life that I didn't even realize that was there. And subsequently what developed over the next several weeks and months was that, yes, there was a great difficulty in living with blindness and living with a substantial loss of vision, great difficulty with that. But there is a greater and perilous danger to not simply being blind, but there is a greater and perilous danger to being blind to that blindness. And I wish the extent of my problems were merely limited to the physical aspects of my body, but the reality is that I have a much more profound problem with sin in my life that creates blindness in my life. It creates large blind spots in my life that I am utterly blind to, that my heart wants to make work, that the narrative picture of my life, that the story through which and the lens through which I view the world, I neatly stitch that thing together so that in my perspective, there aren't any gaps in the way that it happens. And so too, as a condition for each one of us, is that not only are we blind and do we have these blind spots, but we are blind to our blindness. And the first thing necessary to address this is that we must believe that we're blind to our own blindness. Verse 12 of this makes clear. It begins by saying this, take care, brothers. You could add two exclamation points there. It's saying, hey, wake up and pay attention. There is something that you need to be alerted to in the course of your life. And notice what he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, notice the progression, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Next verse adds that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice the progression. He says, take care that there isn't any of you that has an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, who is that? That's all of us. Now, within each one of us that there is, yes, evil. There is evil that is bent against God. There is sinfulness in my own life that is bent against God. And what happens with the sinfulness and the evilness in my own life is that leads me to more, that leads me to unbelief. And what that unbelief does is that it leads me and makes me become hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. It makes me become calloused to sin. It makes me become calloused to the challenges that are going on in my life. And ultimately, that leads me to become, to fall away from the Lord. A couple of weeks, a couple of a year or two ago, we were at a we went to a dinner, a cooking class, kind of like the Emerald style thing where, you know, the chef cooks the food in front of you, and as he cooks the food in front of you, he cooks it, and then you eat it. Great night, tells you how to cook it, what have you. And one of the things that shocked me that night was that the chef, when he was pulling the pork out of the oven, he opened up the oven door, and he reached in with his bare hands, and he grabbed the tray, and he stuck it on the counter. And I looked at his assistant, and I was like, did he just do that? He said, oh yeah, he does it all the time. I'm like, Really? Like, how does he do that? She goes, his hands are like Paul's. 
I mean, his hands are leather. He has just burned off all the nerves in his hands, and they're just these thick, thick calluses. I'm like, that's disturbing. <laughs> and what had happened is that he had, had grabbed so much hot stuff that his hands had become hardened to the heat and pain that everyone else, will, everyone else would have experienced. And what the writer of Hebrews lays out here, he says, you have an evil, unbelieving heart that becomes hardened. It becomes callous. It becomes desensitized that you can't tell what's hot and what's cold. You can't tell what's right and what's wrong. And that evil, unbelieving heart leads us to fall away from the living God. Now, who is this? Who would do such a thing? I mean, who would have this evil, unbelieving heart that would fall away from the living God? I mean, surely not I, right? Well, notice what verse 12 says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care, brothers, that he's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers, people who have committed their life to Jesus. And what he's saying, he's saying, listen, for those of you that are Christians, there is an issue that is a normal part of every Christian. And it occurs within every Christian, not some particular, not those outside of the faith, not some special class of Christian that hasn't skipped the skipped church in a week or two. No, it's not just simply those that have, you know, kind of gone back and forth. But if you call yourself a Christian, this is you. And it's no matter how long you've been a Christian. In fact, the longer you've been, one, the more likely you are that you have the propensity to this. It says there is something inside of us that places us in a perilous danger of not only being blind, but being blind to our blindness. And what the writer of Hebrews is making clear here is that this is a condition that we are in. It's not simply a situation that we face, but it is a condition that we are in. What's the difference? A situation is this. You've got a challenging meeting at work. You're about to see an extended family member that's going to be a particularly difficult. And so you say to your friends, hey, I need to pray for you. I need you to pray for me because this is about to be a particularly difficult situation. I'm going to go into it, and it's going to be over. It's a situation. What the writer of Hebrews is identifying that this isn't a situation that you are faced with. It is a condition of believers. It's something of who we are and what we, part of who we are every moment and every, every day, that we are in danger where we are blind, and not only are we blind, we're blind to our blindness. Not only have we been hardened by sin, but we are becoming hardened further by sin. Well, how do we deal with this? First, we need to believe that sin is blinding. Why is sin blinding? Because verse 13 tells us, because sin itself is deceitful. It says, see to it that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does it mean to be deceived? It means to think you're right, but to be wrong. It means to th- be convinced that you're right, that you're going the right way, that you see clearly, but in actuality you don't. And when you are deceived, who is the first person to get, that gets blinded? When I sin, who is the first person that is blinded and deceived? Me. Now the truth of the matter is that I am very others, and I, I'm a very other-centered person. This is one of the gifts that God has given me. I'm very other-centered. If there's a problem, it is someone else's fault. It is over there. It is someone other than me, my fault. And I am very good at seeing other people's sin. I can see other people's sin with, very, with great clarity. 
And when sin is pointed out in my life, I'm very quick to identify that it is someone other's fault instead of mine. And I would become astonished that my sin is getting pointed out. How could you say that? I'm dumbfounded. Where did that come from when I can see other people so clearly? You see, this is one of the differences between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Because in physical blindness, you are keenly aware of your blindness and your limitations. And you make extra effort to learn to live with those limitations and to deal with those limitations. I had to learn how to drive differently. By the way, we're doing faith-building exercises after church. Rides with the pastor. (laughs) Anyone else that wants to hop in, please join me. But that's one of the differences, is that when you have a physical blindness, you learn to live and to deal with those, expect, those limitations. But with spiritual blindness, what that, the challenge is that I can't recognize my own blindness, and not simply do I not recognize it, but what happens is that I become convinced that I see perfectly clear, that I have excellent vision, that I can see quite well. And that this is one of my fundamental problems with my spiritual blindness is the clarity of vision with which I believe that I see the world. And so spiritual blindness is a little bit like me driving. We're heading into the intersection. I'm confident that I'm going the right way. I am confident that I'm right. Hey, stop. Why are you yelling at me? Why Why are you shouting at me? Well, there's a median in front of us. Did, did you not see that? No, I, I didn't see it. But now with you, I, I, I do see it now. Could, could you not see it? Actually, no, I, I, I couldn't see it. How? I don't understand this. How? How could you not see it? Because I have spiritual blindness in my life. And my mind and my soul knits together the story of my life that conveniently erases those things that are difficulties or challenges in my life that would make me see those things. So what are some of the signs of spiritual blindness in our life? One sign is this, is a lack of honest relationships. A lack of relationships, an honest, soul-bearing relationship where you are engaged with people who you have invited to speak into your life, and maybe they've invited you to speak into their life, but you don't have those types of relationships in your life. Oh, no, I've got lots of friends. I haven't talked to them in five years, but maybe we'll call up and get back together again. No. There's a lack of honest relationships. And then what happens is that when a sin starts to get exposed or a challenge or an area of blindness, it turns into a defensive anger. Why are you yelling at me? Why are you pointing this out? What's the, there's nothing wrong here. How, dare, how could you say that? And then if the issue is so apparent that you can't deny it any further because the median's like right in front of your car, is that that oftentimes for many people turns and goes from defensive anger to becoming defensively depressed. It's a great tactic. What does defensively, de- defensively depressed mean? It means this. It says... You know, I know I've got this issue. I'm struggling with it. I'm dealing with it. And what I don't need is I feel bad about it enough already. I feel down about it enough already. And I don't need you to try to talk about the things that are going on in my life. And if I feel really bad about it, that means that you're going to leave me alone and I can keep doing what I want to do. Because if I feel bad enough about it, or at least I tell other people that I feel bad enough about it, then I don't really have to deal with those issues. I'm defensively depressed. 
That then frequently progresses into a certainty that we see this clearly. I don't need your comment. I don't need you to speak into my life. I'm dealing with it already. I can see what the problem is. I see myself. I see you. I see the situation clearly. I don't need anybody else. I see clearly. I'm sure of it. Why do we need to pray about it? Why do I need to get any other? Why do we need to talk to anybody else? I know what's going on. I'm certain that I see clearly. And then if that issue becomes addressed further and someone's seeking to deal with it, that then turns into another sign where someone says, well, you know, have you repented of this? Well, of course I repent. I mean, have you forgiven this person who's done this to you? Well, of course I forgive. Of course you haven't. Why? Because repentance and forgiveness are two of the things that we hate to do the most. Repentance entails humbling ourselves. It means admitting that we're wrong. Forgiveness entails bearing the cost for what somebody else did. Of course I repent. Of course I forgive. That's not, that's not a given. Two things that we hate to do is to be humbled and to bear the cost for something that's not our fault, right? That's not a given. And if someone's so quick to assume that those things, that those things have actually occurred, it's a pretty good indication of a spiritual blindness in their life. Finally, that they're convinced of their own goodness. Well, all, all I wanted was for us to be happy. You know what? I just, I, just have, I just want to just honor Jesus with all my life. I hope that's true. But if you really think that's worth the extent of all of your motives, you don't know your heart. And there's a spiritual blindness there that that's indicative, that, that, that has become indicative of. Paul Tripp, who was a counselor, he's a counselor for many years, he reflects on this issue of spiritual blindness in people that he's counseled and he gives this reflection about his counseling ministry. He says this. He says, I have, I have counseled people for many years. And one of the things that has impressed me over and over again is how self... Ah, first slide there, Jeff. I have counseled people for many years. And one of the things that has impressed me over and over again is how self-deluded people, including me, can be. It's amazing how hard it is to see ourselves with accuracy. It's been my experience over and over again that we see the other person with a fairly high degree of accuracy, but we can't seem to see ourselves with the same precision. I have had angry people get quite angry when I've suggested that they are angry. (laughs) I have had controlling people posit that they think themselves to be quite serving. I've watched vengeful people seem unaware that they lived to settle the score with others. I've worked with men eaten with the cancer of lust who tell me that sex isn't a big struggle for them. I've had bitter wives give me the litany of ways they think that they are loving their husbands. I have counseled a gymnasium full of teenagers who really do think that they are wiser than their surrounding authorities. I have sat with ungracious and legalistic pastors and heard them talk of their allegiance to a theology of grace. Do you hear the commonality in all these things? Is that we are blind to our blindness. And when we are blind to our blindness, we are in great peril and in great danger. However, God did not leave us to grope in the darkness. 
He didn't leave us to, to grope around and to wallow around, but he sent Jesus Christ into this world who is the light of the world. He is the, the light that shines in the darkness. He is the one who came into a blind and dark and self-deceived and self-impressed world. And on the cross, he took darkness upon himself. And you see this so vividly portrayed in the historical account of his death, about how darkness comes over the land and how the temple curtain is torn in two and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As, the God, as Jesus, who was in the eternal light of the Father, was ripped into, into two and plunged into complete and utter darkness. And he did so so that we might be drawn to the light of God. What that means for each one of us is that it's a calling for us to turn to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Turn to Jesus, who is the one who came, came to give sight to the blind. Who is the light that begins to shine in us, that when we turn and trust in Jesus, that his light, his spirit dwells within us, and his light begins to flicker with inside our souls. And as that one light of this one person who trusted in Jesus begins to flicker, and as another flickering flame gets joined together, and joined together with another one, and joined together with another one, and joined together with another one, there is a light that glows brighter and brighter that we might not only see the Lord Jesus more clearly, but that we would see ourselves more clearly. The writer of Hebrews picks up on the same idea in identifying not only the problem that we have here about being blind to our own blindness, but the antidote to it. And the antidote is that we need the ministry of each other to address the blindness in our life. Verse 13, it says, first of all, verse 12, take care. It's an exhortation one to another, verse 13, but exhort one another every day. Exhort one another, that is, encourage one another, speak into each other's life. Why? Because you can see things in my life that I can't see, and I can see things in your life that you can't see. And this mutual person-to-person ministry is the heart of the Christian life, is that I need other Christians to show me my life from God's perspective, and they need the same from me. And personal insight, knowledge of myself, is the product of relationships, it's the product of being in community. I need you in order to know and to really see myself. Why? Because otherwise I will listen to my own arguments. I will believe my own lies. I will buy into my own self-delusion. And my life will shrink to the claustrophobic confines of my own self-defined little world. Paul Tripp continues. He says, you know, my self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. And that if I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. The calling here is quite simple, is that because we are blind to our blindness, we need the ministry of others. But what, is that, what does that look like? How do we need that? How often do we need that? Well, the next verse lays it out clearly. In verse 13, it says, exhort one another every day. How often? Every day. Now, if you study the original Greek here, it actually helps us understand it. What the original Greek says is exhort one another every day. It's amazing. I don't know, I don't know how people try to get around that. You know, once a year is fine, once a month. Oh, I talk to people every once in a while. You know, I go to church, but when I go to church, I don't talk to anybody. 
what does it say? Exhort one another every day that in order to deal with the blindness in our life is that we need brothers and sisters speaking into our life every day. Well, how long? As long as it is called today. Well, how long is it called today? Forever. That this is something that you, that you never get past. You never move beyond this point that we need the daily ministry of one another speaking into our lives. We need that daily ministry in our lives. This point became particularly clear to me when we were living in St. Louis because right behind our church, there was a house, a house for the blind. And it was an incredible community. It was a quirky community, but an incredible community. And what particularly struck me, struck me about the community that was there is that here are a group of people who needed each other every day. And they knew that they needed each other every day. And the reason why they lived in community was because they recognized their condition. They saw their condition, and because of the condition that they were in, it drove them into long-suffering, committed relationships with each other. And they were long-suffering, committed relationships with each other that persevered, you know, that wasn't, they weren't easily offended. Regardless of what you do to me, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be committed to you. Why? Because I need you in my life, and the truth of the matter is you need me in your life. And so, too, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be in relationship with each other, committed to relationships with each other. Why? Because of the condition that we find ourselves in. Because of the condition of being of our own spiritual blindness. And because Jesus Christ, when he died and when he saved us through his blood shed on the cross, is that he didn't save us individually. It's that he united us into a community and into relationships with one another. Sometimes it's often at this point that people would object to this idea of needing to be in a relationship, needing to have other people speak into our life and say, well, you know what? I can read the Bible for myself. I don't need other people to have a relationship with God. I don't need other people to tell me how to follow Jesus. Well, if you read your Bible, yes, you do. I don't need other people to tell me how to follow. Yes, you do. Because the same Bible that you're reading tells you that you need other people to help you follow Jesus. And so that's the calling that it says there. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. That the same Holy Spirit that unites you to Jesus Christ works in your heart and says that he unites you in relationship to one another and unites you in a community with other people so that you would journey together to become more and more like Christ. Now, some people would object to this a little bit and say, well, yeah, I hear that, but shouldn't this be my spouse? Shouldn't I have this kind of relationship with my spouse? Yes, you should, and I hope that you do, but not exclusively. Notice that the text says here, take care, brothers, take care, brothers, brothers, take care, lest there be in any of you that men, you need to make sure that there aren't other men who are dealing with this. What is he identifying is that men, you need men in your life to be the man that God is making you to be. You can draw it from this passage or other passages state, more explicitly for women. Women, you need women in your life to be the woman that God is calling you to be. Should you have that relationship with your spouse? Yes, but you should not but but you should have other men or women speaking into your life to challenge you to know Jesus and to follow him and for his life for him to be expressed in your life. Now another dodge that I get sometimes with this idea is people say um, well, this is great. You know, that just reminds me, I just need to get together with my friends more. Okay. Well, I hope that your friends are friends that encourage you to become more like Jesus Christ. 
Because so often what we make our friends to be is we find people who are like us and we make friends with people who like us. And often there's people who just often will tell us what we want to hear. You know what? You are so right. I had the same situation pop up the other day. And you know what? I did what you did, but it was much, it was much worse than that. Really, I never thought about doing it that way. I didn't either. And, and you know what? You are so right. Don't worry about it. Things aren't that bad. Just, just continue on. We surround ourselves with people who tell us things that we want to hear. But what's the encouragement here? He's saying, take care, brothers, that there's none of you who have a sinful, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers. That what does that mean? Is that whose responsibility is that for this person who is, has the propensity to have a sinful, hardening heart to fall away from the God, living God, that it is this person over here's responsibility to address that issue in that person's life. It is this person's responsibility over here to speak into another person's life and to address those issues. Take care, brothers, that in your midst there is no one who has a sinful, unbelieving heart. What does that mean? Is That means we not only need friends, yes, have good friends, but have friends who are committed to journeying towards Jesus Christ, who are committed to challenging you to grow in your relationship, that you are inviting to speak into your life. For most of us, that probably means that we need to seek out those relationships. They don't just happen. Particularly for those of you that live especially transient lives because of the job that you're in. It means that you especially need to seek those out and commit yourselves quickly into relationships. To prioritize those relationships and invest in Christ-centered relationship. Why? Because we need the daily ministry of others in our lives to begin to address the blindness that we have, that each one of us has. As a church, one of our core values is that we are... is that we are an authentic community. And what do we mean by a core value? It means that this is a defining characteristic of who we are as a body of believers. It means that this is, some, this is the way that we do ministry. This is the, the character. This is how we do life. This is what life looks like in our midst. This is what life looks like in our church. It's how we do ministry. It's how we relate to each other, that we do so in authentic community. And here's what... we how we've articulated and summarized the biblical teaching, is that authentic community is a community where Jesus Christ is experienced in his presence and power, where lives are transformed by the the gospel through mutual ministry. In gospel-centered community, people come to know and experience his presence in a way that cannot happen individually. In a way that cannot happen individually. You cannot have the depth of a relationship with God isolated from the community of believers. Scripture says it's impossible. It cannot happen individually. This is a community where it is safe to be broken without fear of condemnation, where there is gospel-inspired transparency and accountability, and where there is a fertile context for the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Seeking to address this area further, We as a church are making a shift within our small group ministries to launching these community groups that you've heard about in bits and pieces over the last couple weeks. And our community groups are our principal strategy, principal opportunity for us as a body body to become connected in Christ-centered relationships. An opportunity, a context for you to ask people to speak into your life, to say, where do you see me? Where do you see me? least open to input? Where are the ways have I become hardened to God's word? Where are ways that I need to apply this aspect of God's word further in my life? 
Why? Because I need you. And you need me. That we need each other. Individuals who have been united to Christ, who Christ has united to one another. Why are we doing this? Because the Word of God calls us to admit our blindness and to commit ourselves to the ministry that God has given us in one another. We'll be talking about more about community groups next week, but let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, you are a God who exists in community. You are a God that exists in relationship and does ministry and life in community. And Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus who willingly plunged into the darkness so that we could be set free from our blindness. Lord, thank you that our faith is not just this ethereal, spiritual, intangible concept, but you have given us flesh and blood in one another to journey together that we might become more like Christ and that your light might shine in us shine through us to this community, to one another, and to the world. We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.